Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I love the parables. They are just great and wonderful stories. And you've already heard one read to you this morning from the Gospel in Matthew 25. And I say 25 because I said 16 before, but only because I read that off of my cheat sheet. So I apologize for that. We're going to take a look at a wonderful little story that is called the Parable of the Talents. It is simple, it is clear, and believe it or not, it is pretty easy to understand, and its lessons, I think, are almost impossible to miss. If I could boil it down, I would say this is a warning against laziness and passivity. Uh, This is a call to risk all you have on behalf of Jesus and his kingdom. This parable says if you really believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, then there is work to be done by his followers before he returns. So I would tell you this morning, friends, as Christ followers, you are challenged to live with excellence, to go the second mile, to stop making excuses for non-performance and turn your faith into deeds by perhaps doing four things. One, caring more than others think is wise, risking more than other people think is safe, dreaming more than other people think is practical, and expecting more than others think is possible. Now, if you're anything like me or the ordinary person, there will be times when you are a little bit afraid to live out on the edge like that guy. We don't want to step too far out there because of a fear of failure. I mean, what happens if we try and we don't succeed? I mean, what will our friends think if we suddenly become Jesus freaks or whatever? I mean, what are our critics going to say? Are they just waiting for us to stand up so they can knock us down? What will happen to our reputation if we just kind of are all in for Jesus in every way? But friends, against those self-fulfilling prophecies of doom, I want to share with you these famous words that come from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, who does actually try to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the worst, if he fails, at least if he fails, daring greatly. Far better it is to dare mighty things, To win glorious triumphs, even though checked by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Those are pretty powerful words. Now, with that little bit as a background, I want to get into this parable of Matthew. And as I studied it, there are two facts that kind of jumped out at me. And here's fact number one. All three servants were judged by how well they managed somebody else's resources. So when the master came and he gave these talents to the servants, both they and he knew that money was his. Indeed, the first two men very clearly say, your money. Uh, They understood that the master was loaning this to them uh, to develop with the understanding that someday he would come back and there would be an accounting. And when the master rebukes the third man, the master still actually calls it my money, my own. Now, from this, we earn a very crucial 
truth, and it's this, that all that we have belongs to God. We own nothing. Everything we have is, uh, everything we think is ours is merely on loan from God. I don't know what you think about Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I can either take him or leave him. But one thing he always said that kind of struck me was talent on loan from God. At least he's being honest in that statement. See, the, the, uh, God made everything. God gave us everything. And one day, guess what? He's going to take it all back. And one day you're going to have to answer for what you did with your life. And you'll answer for what you did with the stuff he gave you. Here's fact number two. The third man thought he knew his master, but he really didn't. In verse 24, he plainly said, I know you. But he was wrong. He was dead wrong. He thought his master was a hard, cruel, unfair man who made a profit off the labor of other people. But, if you know, if he really believed what he said, he would have at the very least put that money in the bank and gotten at least a, a small interest return. But he didn't even believe his own excuse. He thought he knew his master, but he didn't. And because he didn't, he lost everything. So we need to ask this question. What are the talents all about in this story? Now, normally when we hear the word talent, uh, we tend to think of natural abilities like the ability to play the piano or the organ or the handbells or uh, being good at football or basketball or baseball or knowing how to fix something. But in the first century, when this story was told, a talent was a rather large amount of money. Originally, it stood for a weight, like how much gold or silver would weigh. But later, this became known as some silver coins. And most scholars would tell you that a talent of silver would represent about 16 to 20 years of salary. Now, I just want you to think, for example, if somebody gave you a talent, that was equivalent to 16 to 20 years of your salary. That might be a fairly sizable amount of money. In any way, you'd figure it would be a large amount. So to give this guy five talents would be like giving him somewhere between 80 to 100 years of salary to invest. Now, Paul, that would be about, what, $10,000 for you? A little bit more than that. Okay. Two talents would be 32 to 40 years of salary. And even one talent would be 16 to 20 years of salary. So these three men certainly had more than enough money to invest. But it's also noteworthy that each man was given a different amount. Verse 15 said each one was given an amount according to his ability. Now, who made that decision? Who made that determination? Well, the master did. Now, why did he do that that way? Well, the only answer I would give you is... Because he wanted to. I mean, there's no other reason is needed. If you're the master and you've got the money and you want to give money away, uh, you can do it any way you want to. And you don't need to give anybody any explanation. He could have given seven talents to the first one, four talents to the, the second one, could have given 11 to the third one. Uh, or he could have reversed it all if he had wanted to do it. The man who owns the money is sovereign over the money. He can do with those talents whatever he wills. So here we need to learn a crucial point. It's this. God is not obligated to treat you like he treats anyone else. See, he can give you more or he can give you less than other people. And guess what? He does. I mean, we are a kind of an amalgam of different talents today and abilities, if you will. 
Uh, you have more than some people, and you have less than some others. You've got more money and talent and opportunity, more strength, better health, better connections with other people, but you probably also got less of some of those things compared with other people as well. See, in this great pecking order of life, there are always people who are above us, people at our own level, and there are people beneath us. And that reality kind of leaves us with two choices. I'm going to kind of divide people into two parts. One, there are some who just plain simple gripe about their situation and use everything as an excuse. Or you can accept what God has given you. You can accept what God has blessed you with. And you can start where you are and you can do what you can do with what God has blessed you with. I don't know about comparing. I, I, I really kind of hate that. Uh, do you ever get into that, particularly maybe sometime around Christmas time, you start comparing what presents you got with the presents other people got, and you think, man, I got stiffed on that one. I, I, I don't know. The comparison game to me is, is useless. It's nonproductive. I mean, just think about it. I mean, who knows why Jane got more and Alice got less at Christmas? I don't know. Uh, who knows why one man gets cancer and another man doesn't? I mean, who knows why one person is born in El Salvador and the other person is born in Belgium? I mean, only God knows the reason. He's the only one who knows, and as far as I can tell, he's not telling anybody. See, at the very moment, every moment that we spend worrying about things is a truly wasted moment. In fact, I'm gonna, I, I, I want to ask this question. How many of you are worriers? Raise your hand. You're worriers. I gotta tell you, the only thing my wife worries about is the fact that I don't worry about anything. <laughs> this is, this is, this is bonus teaching right now. If you were a worrier, guess what? You would be really good at meditating on God's Word. See, worry is just negative meditating. Throw that away, meditate on the Word of God. Let's get back to the sermon. That's just bonus stuff right there. <laughs> See, the question is not, what have I been given? But rather, what will I do with what God has given me? I mean, think of it this way. Your life is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. It's not what you have. It's what you do with what God gave you that makes the difference. See, God gives us what we can handle when we can handle it. If we needed more, God, I'm sure, would bless us with more. And when you need more, you're going to get more. You're not responsible for your position, but you are responsible for your disposition. And so I say to all of you this morning, maybe you ought to kind of jolly up a little bit. I mean, be happy with what you got. Now, what is our investment to be? Let's take a moment and focus on these two men and what they did with their talents. Now, one man starts with five. I don't know what he invested in, but he came back and he had ten. The other guy starts with two, ends up with four. Now, who had the greater increase? Well, I don't know, mathematicians probably can tell me differently, but I'd just say both of them. I mean, both of them literally doubled the amount of money that their master had given them to invest. Now, that third guy is something else entirely. He starts with one, he ends up with one. In between, he buries that talent so he wouldn't lose it. Uh, he's got the classic, what I would call, loser's mentality. He is a perpetual victim of life. He's afraid to do anything because he thinks the system is always rigged against him. And that's essentially what he actually said to his master when he calls him a hard man. 
See, because he thought he would be punished, he decided to hoard the money. Uh, Making more money evidently never entered this guy's mind. Doing something with the talent somebody gave him, it just didn't cross his mind to do that. His fear of punishment was far greater than his desire to be rewarded. Now, was he right in what he said to the master? Well, in one sense, yes. Clearly, all three men knew the master would come back. And all three men knew that he would demand an accounting. But the first two focused on the fact that their master, besides being a fair man, could also be a very generous, loving man. They knew if they did a good job with what he had blessed them with, that they'd get a greater reward at the end. And the third guy lived in so much fear that he didn't do anything at all. So what was his problem? I mean, if we were going to psychoanalyze him, I guess we were psychoanalyzing I'd say he thought he knew his master, but he didn't. Uh, and because he didn't know him, he didn't trust him. And because he didn't trust him, he did nothing. And because he did nothing, everything he had was taken away. And then, I hope you caught it, in fact, all three scripture readings today in our hymn so far has all been pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Some of it sounds uh, pretty downer. But he's cast into outer darkness where there's this weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in biblical terms, this man ended up where? In hell. Now, if you do nothing with what God gives you, I'll be honest with you, friends, you will endanger your future. Now, I realize those are kind of shocking words, but I see really no other way to kind of interpret this parable. See, the third man was called what? He was called worthless. And he was rejected by his master. He represents, I guess, people who, let's say, may come to church but never, ever really give their hearts to the Lord. They don't serve the Lord because they don't know the Lord. They invest everything in themselves because they just want to live for this world and they have no thought of the world to come. See, those people who claim to be Christians but live as if they were the center of the universe, people who have no time or interest in the things of God, Guess what? You're going to wake up one day in the wrong place because they would be counted as worthless servants who never really knew the Lord. The Lord would say, like he said to those five foolish virgins, I never knew you. You That's a very solemn warning. And we'd all do well to take that warning very seriously. But what is... Our reward. Now, that's kind of the down part of the sermon. What, what, what is the positive side of this story? And there is a positive side. The rewards promised to those people who faithfully use their talents in the service, service of Jesus in this kingdom are amazing. In his parable, the master says the same thing to the first two servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been found faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I hope you see that there is a commendation, a promotion, and an invitation all wrapped in that one little verse. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the day when I hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. There's a promotion that says, You've been faithful over a little. I'm going to set you over much. And then that invitation, Enter into the joy of your master. Won't that be a great thing to hear someday as you stand at the door to heaven? Well done, good and faithful. John, Mary, Susan, Coulter. You've been faithful with everything I gave you. Entering the joy of your master. 
That prompts me to ask you, friends, what are you living for? What are you living for? Mark 8.36 says, um, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? See, there is a message here for all of us, if we'll only heed it. And the message is, find out what truly matters in this life, and then go and do it. Now, I can't answer for all of you, but if you ask me what truly matters in life, it is my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and what I do in response to what he's already done for me on the cross. See, it's time to serve the Lord. Way back in the book of Exodus, uh, God said to Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses just said, "Uh, it's a staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. And he did. And guess what? It turned into a snake, a serpent. And then he said, Moses, pick it up. Well, he didn't really want to pick it up anymore. I want to pick up a snake. And But when he did, it turned back into a staff. I think God asks all of us that same question. What's in your hand? What's in your hand? Now, you might be prone to say, well, not much. (laughs) Not Not really. Well, it doesn't really make a difference how much or how little. Give it to the Lord anyway. I mean, you don't have much talent, you say. You don't have much money. You don't have very little opportunity. Well, fine. Give what you have to the Lord. Give it all to Him. Put yourself at His disposal. And you might be surprised with what God does with that little that you claim to have. Remember, it's faithfulness toward God that matters. It's not worldly success. So I'd ask you this morning, you know, your church needs you. What will you do? What will you do? You know, the world is crying out for help. What are you going to do about it? Jesus says, come follow me. What are you going to say? Now, I don't know how long the world is going to last. I'm not a doomsday prophet or anything, but I think that the time is short. The world is passing away. The end of things is at hand. It's been at hand for a long time. And who knows how long you're going to live? Who knows if this is the day that Jesus will return? And I've often said, as far as I'm concerned, he could have come right before I had to start this sermon. I'd have been relieved. Maybe you too. I mean, who knows what tomorrow morning will bring? I mean, now is the time, now is the hour, and God is calling us now. Now the question is, what are you going to do, and how are you going to respond? Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? Um... You say, Lord Jesus, here I am. Here I am. Use me any way you see fit. I offer you all that I have to the service of your kingdom. Put me where you want me to be. I I will give you the right to change my agenda of life in advance and not worry about it. Now, would you be afraid to say a prayer like that? I remember when I, I started praying a prayer going this way. Lord, whatever you ask of me, before you ever ask, the answer is yes. That's a pretty dangerous prayer. I wouldn't even begin to tell you what all happened after I started praying that prayer. But I'd say, don't be afraid. that There's great adventure out there for Christ followers who desire to serve the Lord with all their heart. And friends, let me tell you something about Jesus. Jesus never, ever took the safe road. Jesus did not take the easy way. Scripture says he humbled himself and came to earth as a man. And he humbled himself all the way to that cross and suffered and died for you and for me. I mean, he never took a shortcut. 
to save you. So if that's what you're looking for in life, a shortcut, you might as well forget about Jesus because he doesn't really have any part with safe or shortcuts. I think we in our country today and in our churches have been fed a lie of Satan at this point. We've been kind of taught that to be saved somehow means to be safe. To which the biblical response would be, I'll give it to you in Greek and Hebrew, balderdash and poppycock. No truth in that at all. A more biblical view would be this. To be saved means to be so secure in the love of God that you never have to play it safe again. Let me say that one more time. To be saved means to be so secure in the love of God that you never have to play it safe again. See, to me, that's a far superior perspective. Salvation puts you in uh, such a position that you can afford to take big risks because you know you've got a big God who loves you even if you stumble and fall. Now, let me wrap this up just by giving you what I think is the best argument I know for living on the edge with Jesus. Are you ready for it? Here's my best argument for living on the edge. We're all going to die someday. That's, that's as good as I got. Uh, see, since we're all going to die someday, the only question is, are you going to die playing it safe? Or are you going to die having risked it all for God? Now, personally, I don't want to die until I'm dead. That sounds kind of odd. I hope you understand. I don't want to die until I'm dead. I want to live until the very last moment, fully invested for Jesus and his kingdom, doing everything I can to advance his cause in the world and taking risks based on kingdom principles. See, friends, our great calling as Christ's followers is to find out what God is doing in this world and then to kind of fling ourselves wholeheartedly into his cause. Maybe just a little bit more specific. I mean, go back in your own world. Go back to your home. Go back to your business, your neighborhood, your classroom, your clubs, your family, your church, your town, your city, your state, or your nation. Go back into your world and, and wherever it is and find out what God is doing there. And then go and do it with him. And then get ready for the ride of your life. That's God's call to all of us. Way back in 1981, when President Ronald Reagan was nearly assassinated, his pastor came to the hospital to see how he was doing. He took President Reagan's hand and he said, how is it with you and the Lord? And President Reagan responded by saying, everything is fine with me and the Lord. And his pastor said, how do you know? And President Reagan said, I have a savior. See, that's the difference Jesus makes. When you have a Savior, you can face your own death with courage and grace. So, my friends, do you have a Savior? If you don't, if you're not sure, I would urge you, today is as good as any day, to place your life in the hands of the Savior. To trust Him as Lord and Savior. To ask Him to take away your sins and give you a new life. To come to Him and your life will never, ever be the same again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant that we might be great risk takers for the kingdom of God. Forgive us for making excuses to cover our selfish choices. Shake us free from the love of the world. 
May we enter the freedom that comes from living on the edge with you. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we'll gather together our tithes and our offerings.